We are continuing where we left off. It is May 10th, 2020. We're going to have the thought of the week and prayer. The master plan. Okay. I admit it. I am struggling to define the plan of the Father in ways that would give it ultimate importance in our minds. Before we can examine the motive of God, we must know the plan in an intimate way. By this, I mean we must know in enough detail to be able to develop the wisdom that has been hidden in a God's destiny or our glory before time began. To enter into the motivation of God, knowing the details of the plan is not enough. You must know how to have a grasp of them so as to master them. Once mastered, we can enter into the wisdom spoken of here. To use a weird analogy for which I might be known, it is like a murder trial. The facts and the details must come out first. What actually happened? What is the evidence? What did the witness say? Once we have all the evidence and testimony in, we can see what happened. However, that is not good enough. Our attention must be focused on motive now. Why did he commit the murder? What was he thinking? What are the circumstances that led to the final results? Murder? In the same way, we must have such a grasp of the details of the master plan. So then, progress to the motive of the Father, he invites us to he invites us to critique, I guess that's what his thoughts, motives and intents of his heart. Remarkably, this is the same way he examines our hearts. It's taken for the thought of the week. Well we must we all know that the Father has the plan, like we discussed earlier, who knows the thought of the, of the Father? But well, we have the mind of Christ. But God has He designed it from the beginning of His time, not ours, because with God there is no time frame. He always existed and He always will exist. But He did have us in, our, in, in the plan of His motivation before we had been created to where we're born. And it says that by this, I mean, we must know it is enough details to be able to develop the wisdom that has been hidden and that God justice for our glory before time began. So what the Father has planned on us is to give us all things that he desired us to be and was ruled for us to determine who would be his children and notice that we are in the thoughts of God. This is how I get some ticket bombs, the master plan, uh, related to the thought of the week. So at this time, we have prayers given to the wife, given by for us to our motivation, so he can actually give us his divine thought, and we just go about it his way. Go ahead, the wife. Thank you very much, Steve. Well, does anybody have any special request? Uh just the, prayer request. the uniqueness of this time we live in, um, prayer for uh, 
the stresses that are upon many at this hour. Okay. Well, my family as well as the white. Absolutely, Dave. And I'll pray for everybody's family. So let us bow our head in prayer before God. Dear Father in heaven, we, um, we thank you for this opportunity to come together and fellowship with each other and fellowship with our spirits, which is also includes your spirit in us. Let us fellowship in, in, in terms of the spirit. Let us always be striving to walk in the spirit. I wish everybody um, a happy Mother's Day. The mothers are an incredible um um, incredible piece of the of the family and, and reproduction and we wouldn't be here if it weren't for mothers so we, we thank um, the mothers for what they've done and we also thank um, this church and, and Pastor Doug for what for the truth that we're exploring going deeper into um, what you have revealed to revealed to us, which is beyond anything that we see, hear, or can imagine. Um, we pray for, um, pray for the, the uh, people of this time. The nature of these times is just incredible. Um, over the entire globe, there is a pandemic um, because of this virus, and um, that is resulting in huge amounts of stresses and lifestyle changes and um, perhaps negative changes on the lives of many people who have who are giving up hope. Um, we ask that you would restore their hearts and, and give them hope, give them something to hang on to, and let them um, let the gospel come to them so that they can hear it and let them let their hearts be opened, either suffering directly or indirectly from the coronavirus whether it be health, employment, or homes, um, that you would have mercy on them. Um, we pray for all of the two church, the, the ones on this call, and, and also anybody who has ever been affiliated with this church. You know our mission, and, and uh, let us be true to your mission, and let us all have our eyes of our hearts open for enlightenment from your truth, and let us be humble and teachable. And I also pray for the church worldwide, um, that all around the globe there would be people who are striving to worship you in spirit and in truth. And I pray that we would pay particular attention at this time that we have available. Let us be fully present at this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. <clears throat> Thank you. Uh, Dwight. And Dave, we appreciate that. Uh, we're going to continue on in our service. Uh, you should have notes available to you, and we are going to continue in those notes. John fourteen twenty is our verse. We are right in the middle of it. On that day, you will realize that I am in the Father, you are in me, and I am in you. And in your notes, the events of... The, the events on that day would change everything we ever knew about God. This event was momentous, as it is described in the early chapters of the book of Acts. As the church was born, and when we finally began to examine and investigate just what happened, and we 
find is what we find is absolutely astounding. Theologically speaking, we learn more about God here than we did from creation. Here we learn what God was thinking when he created all things. It all happened on that day. All of this was reduced to a, a day, a 24-hour time period. For those fragile, whimsical disciples who endured by faith and dared to trust the words of the Lord, their eyes were opened on that day. He took that small group of puzzled, emotional, disappointed, and fearful disciples and made them a part of the foundation of the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. On that day, they were transformed from an earthly people to a heavenly people in Christ. There was no doubt they were changed, bolder, more believing and trusting, and more fervent to fulfill their new destiny. I can only imagine their faces as the spirit of truth began to reveal what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, things that God prepared for those who love him. I can certainly say that I am just as excited and ready to hear the manifold wisdom of God some 2,000 years later, are you ready, is the question. So we started looking at this classic verse, John 14, 20. Uh, it's, you know, I thought about, it's classic to me. I've always looked at this verse as, wow, this is some verse, right? Maybe others haven't. So for me to say it's classic may not resonate, but for me... I've always looked at this as, wow, this is God giving us something of great value here. And not that he hasn't already, but boy, to tell us that this is the way it's going to happen later for us. Wow, this, we need to really stop and think about this. So on that day, we, it all happened. And we already said what day that was, Pentecost, as we know. We're not going to rehearse everything we covered already, because if we did, we'd probably not go very far. So on that day uh, was that special day, Pentecost, according to the context that we read. And we said, you will realize, point number two in our outline here, you will realize, and we went through the realization of what happened at Pentecost. Now, we should note that the disciples may have experienced a lot of the what, but they didn't get a lot of the doctrines nailed down and actually even in writing until much later. So the Apostle Paul has a lot to do with the explanation of what Jesus says. I have much more to tell you, more than you can now bear. Right? That much more came later with the Apostle Paul and uh, Peter and uh, John and others who were able to write in the New Testament. We have our understanding in writing. God's eternal purpose is written for us. It's not 
given by word of mouth, we have scriptures that we can actually refer to. So we, anyway, we, we discussed quite a few points of just how God, the Holy Spirit, uh, came and how he's called the Spirit of Truth and what the relevance of that is to us and how he would guide us into all truth. So we covered this from the standpoint of 1 Corinthians chapter 2 where God was saying uh, that people crave wisdom but you know, not the wisdom of this world which is coming to nothing. But then he went into this whole thing about well, we do, however, speak of wisdom, but not the wisdom of this world. But we got a different wisdom that we're talking about in the church. All of this happened, or we could say was introduced at Pentecost. So we went through eight points of how it all uh, is seen in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And we got through there. I think that's where we ended when we discussed how the Spirit, uh, who is the title, the Spirit, Spirit of Truth, how he relates this information. We talked about the quality of the information, the fact that it is of God. And it's even compared to human consciousness and God's consciousness and how the Spirit has access to God's consciousness. Because He is God, by the way. He knows the things of God. So He is able to take from the things of God and communicate them to us. Now that is a difference. Uh, in the Old Testament, there was prophecy and lots of communication. But the Spirit now is a medium to us. And I hope, hope I'm not using the word medium in a horrible way, as they do in the occult. But the Spirit is, he relates the difference of what was known back then to what is able to be known now. He's the one who, like it says, like Christ says, when the Spirit of truth comes, then he will guide you into all truth. He will glorify me. He will do this. He will reveal information that was previously unknown to us. And all of those eight points try to develop that from the apostle's standpoint. He says that if we allow the Spirit, He will make this information known to us. And just to note, there is no other way we can know this information. We can't go read books and read the Old Testament. There's nobody in the Old Testament who has this information. Uh, we can't go to angels and find out from them what they know because this information was even hidden from them. It was revealed to the recipients of the information and not only to the recipients but from us to not only Jews, Gentiles, but also angels. So this information is unique. But it is not just more information about the ch <clears throat> how to run church affairs, uh, what deacons and elders should do or that. But it has to do with the revelation of the mystery. Things that have been hidden. What God's eternal purpose was. What his modus operandi was from 
all the dispensations so that now how they culminate in this dispensation which is the fullness of times which is a hidden dispensation so god laid it out for us he said man nobody can know these things these are the thoughts of god eye has not seen ear has not heard neither has we've heard that verse many times of god describing the quality of information that we now possess by adhering or believing in this age and being uh, mentored by the spirit of truth we have all of this information so it's available to us but it doesn't mean everybody in the church <clears throat> knows about this information so one point in particular that we want to just highlight from last week is just know that the information that we have by the spirit of truth uh, is unique and uh, people who reject this who would say i don't believe that this was unveiled at pentecost i don't believe what you're saying the significance of pentecost is and when you start telling them the things that god has given us they would say it is foolishness they were the only way you can get this information is by accepting what happened at pentecost if you reject what happened at pentecost that's going to land you right back in israel they're significant uh, it's not about the church it's not about god stopping history stopping the prophecy clock and saying i'm going to call out these many sons in the glory i'm going to reveal the depths of my heart to not only the church but to jews gentiles and to even angelic beings so they reject if the only way we can know this information is through the spirit of truth that is it those who reject that will say it's foolishness they will they cannot understand it any other way they can only get it this way all right, so we covered those eight points, which hopefully went through 1 Corinthians chapter 2 in a way that highlighted some of how the spirit of truth would um, uh, reveal this information at Pentecost. Now, obviously, you know it didn't all happen in one day. The church age began, and we see the church having periods and paul speaks of it as a child i spoke as a child i reasoned as a child but when i became a man i put childish ways behind me he's he's likening that metaphor to how the church has periods of infancy that eventually have to be eclipsed by maturity and he, he he's using that so we can say that the church in its infancy was not ready to explore all of the things even though they were available it was a matter of capacity as well so they had to grow and it did so here we are today two thousand years later and we are exploring all the things that they wrote that they were you know were earnestly contending for the faith which was once for all delivered to us we have 
a lot of information in the church. I'm hoping people see that. And the reason why people may not see it is because their focus is not on it, unfortunately. The more you focus on this revelation, the more God will give you. But if you turn aside and say, well, you know, it's not that important. Uh, I'd rather study about Israel or something else. Then you're going to end up saddled with thinking about the previous or prior revelation. The church will not have the significance in your mind that it has in the mind of God. So what we want to do is accentuate what happened in the church, what happened at Pentecost. So we can understand the destiny, the reason that God called us at this particular time. It's important that we do, because that's why we're here. That is our whole reason for being. So then, <clears throat> keeping our outline here, with our outline, we're, we're back to looking at uh, John 14, 20. On that day, you will realize. What will you realize? And here's where we are today. We're going to pick up at point number three. Here's what you will know, that I am in the Father. And this first phrase we're going to look at, that I am in my Father. So, first, this is an abbreviated phrase. It's, it's Really, if you go back, the full phrase is this, is that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me. Now, if you look at John 14, this is where our text is where the context is, you see that. That Philip made the comment, show us the Father, and then that will be enough for us. And Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen the Father has seen, has seen me, has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? And, and then he goes into this whole discourse. Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? So that's the phrase that I'm saying here in John 14, 20 is abbreviated. So what does he mean? He means the whole phrase, but he just uses the first part of the phrase to illustrate that. So I'm just pointing out to you that it is abbreviated. That's all. If you look at verse 11, same thing. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. So what are we getting from this in John 14, 10, and 11? We're getting mutual possession. It is not just that the Father is in Christ. And this is what Christ was pleading with the disciples to tell them. Hey, th what's happening here is the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Uh, he could tell us that all day, of course. He could tell the disciples that. Really, it's the meaning of how that works and what are the results of that, that they are to know. And point B leads us to that thought mutual possession. So when we say mutual possession, why mutual? Because it's not just that I am in the Father. The full phrase that he wanted them to know from the context is that there is a mutual possession. Obviously, if the Father is in Christ, he is possessing him. This is how I'm using the term or arriving at the term mutual possession. And this term is not unique to me. Believe I didn't come up with this. But it is appropriate, seems to be. So let's use it. 
mutual, meaning the Father possesses me, but also I possess the Father. So there's a couple things to explore as we think about mutual possession. In my notes, I'm saying, what is this? <laughs> we, should, we should be asking ourselves that question. The Father is in me, and I am in the Father. What is that? And uh, one person able to possess another person. And we could say for us, it is by means of the Spirit. So whatever happens in this mutual possession, it is the coming of God the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of Truth that enables that for us or that allows mutual possession. It, it, what did not happen in the Old Testament, and it is something that will happen in the New Testament uh, as a result of Pentecost. So Christ teaches the disciples that when the Spirit of Truth comes, it is not just, oh yeah, this will just dawn on you. This is just something you have to believe and then you have it. No, it is a dynamic of Pentecost that enables or allows for this to happen. So I'm hoping you understand that, that it is by means of the Spirit that this mutual possession is possible. And so we want to talk about what is it, uh, how it works. Uh, and the only way we can explain it, it is obviously a spiritual function. We'll get that from verse 22, where Judas asks a question. He says, Judas, not Judas Iscariot. Why, why do we say not Judas, Judas Iscariot in verse 22? Because you should already know that Judas Iscariot is gone from the conversation. He left. Remember, he is the one who betrayed. He is on his way to uh, the Jews to try to uh, get money for betraying Christ. So this is where we are in the story. In the, in the, uh, as Christ is getting ready to, to talk to the disciples in the next four chapters here, he's got this discourse going which will end in him saying, okay, now let's, let's go, let's leave, come on. And he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he prays, and then Judas meets him. You, you know the story. So in this, he's saying in 20 that this is coming, right? We need to understand what are the results of it. So even though it didn't happen for us until John 14, 20, it was already happening in Christ. And he was saying, believe it when I tell you. Now, even though he was telling them, believe it, believe it, we know that they had some limitations. Right? And John 16, when we get to 16, he says, I got much more to tell you, more than you can now bear. So what he already told them here, they just had to believe it. Right? Just listen to me. It's, it goes back to verse 1, John 14, 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. I'm going to tell you things that is going to rock your theological world. But you got to believe them. I'm telling you the truth. You know I'm telling you the truth. If, if you don't know that, believe for the very evidence of the works themselves, right? You know I've been doing things 
that are amazing, that you never saw, that God, only God can do. You know that. So if you don't, I'm telling you some outlandish things, and I admit, and I, I know you can't understand them, but right now I'm preparing you to know that the dynamics that are going on, spiritually speaking, inside of me will be in you on that day. So I'm hoping you get this point. So this mutual possession that is happening in me will be happening in you as well. We'll talk about the results of it. We'll talk about the results of it from Christ. We'll talk about the results of it that happened for the disciples and in turn what happens to us as well. I'm hoping we can really understand this part because it is really the very essence of the church age. It's, it's the Christian way of life. We just came from verse 19, which is very profound and classic as well. That one phrase at the end, which says, because, he says, I'm, well, verse 18, I will come to you. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Now Christ left. He's not here anymore. He's in heaven. But he says, before long the world will not see me, because I live, you also will live. The very essence of what your Christian life is all about in me, because we're now in Christ. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. And how do we get in Christ? Upon believing in him, we were all baptized by one spirit into one body. All of that happened the moment we believed. Now, for the disciples, they already believed. They were already saved. But now, what needed to be added to them is the church, right? The, the church age, right? The, the spirit who would come and give those five assets that we always talk about that he brings. One, the baptism of the spirit, the indwelling, the filling, gifts. He would bring gifts to the body and sealing ministry of the Spirit. Those five things would change us in, in ways that we will be discussing throughout the church age. Okay, so that, that's where it is. So mutual possession. This is point B. This is where we are. Three things to talk about. And the more I talk about this, the, the broader it gets. I'm sorry. For digressing and all of that, but uh, we have to fill in a lot of detail from one week to the next. So we keep the continuity of what we're talking about. So I'm going to take my time. I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to go this route. We're going to take our sweet time as we look at these things. Okay, so we said it was mutual possession and it's by means of the spirit and there are three points to consider really way more than three but i'm going to try to speak to it in three points the father is in me and i am in the father and so let's this is going to be sort of a bible study here we need to look at uh, so how do we begin looking at this and there's some statements john chapter 10 uh, let's go to uh, John 10. It's our first verse. 
37 and 38. So, um, here, 37, do not believe me unless I do the works of my Father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, now this is 38 now, believe the works that you may know and understand. So now get this. Jesus was teaching this way back in chapter 10. I say way back, well. Who knows what the time period is. It wasn't way back, like years and years back. But it was in our context here of John's testimony about what Jesus told them to write. Uh, so here, 37 is very similar to what we find in John chapter 14, where he says believe on the evidence of the works themselves. If you don't get it, if you don't understand that this is happening, this dynamic in me, then what can you derive from that? What you can derive is that, wow, God is with this person. So whether you believe this whole thing about he's the father, Jesus, or who the father is, that Jesus is the son, that he's one with the father, that maybe you don't get any of that, or you don't understand any of that. But at least you can know, God, is there something very special about this person called Jesus? And uh, Jesus is declaring to you the teaching part of it. You are seeing the results, which are the works that he is able to do as a result of who he is. He is able to do those things because... God is with him. Jesus is teaching us further. God is in me. The Father is in me. Now that's what we're supposed to get. Now even before the church age began, church age doctrines were in Christ. Now, of course, nobody knew these dynamics. I would not even go as far as to say it was a mystery. It wasn't presented to us that way. It was just the dynamics, the spiritual dynamics that were that was going on inside of the person of Christ. That's how we ought to see this. So this is what he says in 37. Remember, this is um, it stems from verse 30, where he says, I and the Father are one. He also talks about him being God's son. These are all terms that were rejected. <laughs> I mean... They were so repulsed by Christ saying these things that they wanted to kill him. They wanted to stone him to death as a result of him saying that he was God's son or that he was one with him or I and the Father are one or that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. All of this to the Jews meant you are crazy and we're going to kill you. As a result, we're so mad at what you're saying that we will kill you. Imagine somebody so incensed at what you say that they don't rip your clothes, they rip their clothes. They're so inside of them is just so boiling over with resentment at what you said that they rip their own clothes. That's what happened with these Jewish people that heard Christ talking about the dynamics of his spiritual life. And that's 
That's really, really odd. So let's get it again, just so you you get it, you understand. Do, do, so in verse 37, well, we could go back to verse 36. What about the one the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said, I am God's son? So he says, do not believe me unless I do the works of my Father. But if, you, if I do them, even though you do not believe me, if I'm doing these works and you don't believe what I say about myself, but at least you know this, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. So it doesn't give us like the inner workings of how this relationship works and all of that. But what you can know is this became normative for the church. Every church-age believer has this. And we'll, we'll, even though I haven't demonstrated it through the scriptures yet in John 14, where it says it all that. But just know that what was normative in Christ here going on, what he's trying to explain to us in 14, was happening in him all day long, and uh, would be happening in the disciples on at Pentecost. So, so that's the first thought. No, John, what are we talking about this mutual possession thing? It's, there it is in John 37, 38. Pretty much, if we go back to John 14, I'm going back to John 14, 10 and 11, it's the same kind of thing he's saying about how um, the Father is in him, although we got much more detail in John 14 than we did in John 10. But both scriptures bring to us different aspects of this truth, this understanding of what was going on in Christ. So so let's look at that. Um, in John 14, 10 and 11, we see the same way. Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? In other words, the disciples, obviously, uh, their brows were wrinkled as that Christ was talking about this. But the Jews were ready to kill him. The disciples were like, I don't know if, has he lost it? Is he, he's talking to some weird things. I mean, he's saying some things that are not in our theology. I mean, they were at a theological crisis, if you think about it. I mean, for Christ to say, I mean, here he was, obviously, the Messiah in their minds. And he was doing the works that the Messiah was said he would do. He did everything. He walked, just like the Messiah. When John the Baptist said of Christ, he was having some doubts, and he said, go to them and ask, is he the one? I mean, I know I'm in prison and all, and and I'm a, I'm willing to be here, but I'm not sure it's supposed to go down this way in my mind. This is John the Baptist. So the answer Christ gave, he said, go tell John the sick are being healed, the dead are raised, you know, eyes of the blind are open. So what is he saying? He's saying, look, I'm the one, right? You read the scripture of what I'm supposed to do. I'm doing those things. You didn't do those things. I am. You realize, yes, he's saying, yes, I'm the one. And I'm not just on my word of it, but on the word of God. 
I am the one. So you're supposed to know that, Jesus. So here the disciples were puzzled because it, it, our teaching doesn't have this, that you die, that you go away, and that all these things are going on inside you like this. Our teaching is not about that at all. So we're puzzled. Christ is having to tell the disciples the same thing he's telling the Jews, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees that were following him with hatred. And uh, so, so here in verse 10 and 11, so there it is. He says, I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else, or at least, the very least that you can do is trust me because of the evidence of the works themselves. You know I'm the Messiah. You know God is with me. Maybe you don't know what, what it means to be the Messiah. Maybe you don't understand the dynamics that's going on inside me. But at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Right? That's You know that the Father is living in me because he's the one doing the work. I can't do this. I'm walking around a human being just like you. But you know there's something unique going on. I'm telling you that uniqueness is that the Father is living in me. That's verse 10. At the end, rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing the work. So, wow. All I could say is, wow, when you think about what Jesus had to deal with, what the disciples had to deal with, I'd say it's a theological crisis. Here, we've been following along in Scripture. We've been very true to Scripture. At least that's what I think. And all of a sudden, I start saying things that are in left field, you know, a right field, way outside of the boundaries of what we know to be truth. Suppose I started contradicting grace and saying that it was about works after we had built the foundation of grace and salvation being free, a gift given in, in grace and secured by the work of Christ on our behalf and all of that. And I started talking about our works. You would have to look at me sideways and say, wait a minute, Doug. Although I don't have any evidence of works to convince you, Christ did. He was doing miracles, and Nicodemus had the very best analysis of how we were to understand that. He says that he said no one can do. I'm just going to read it because uh, my quoting it might not do justice to it. So he says. Uh, he says, he came to Jesus at night. This is John 3, 2. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, this is what we know. We know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one can perform the signs you are doing <clears throat> if God were not with him. So if nothing else, he demanded their respect. Because you got our ear. I mean, no one can do this. Obviously, these are supernatural things that only God can do. Only God. So they, or it, it gives a hearing. It, it sets up opportunity for Christ to tell who he is and speak about God or about divine things. And yet, 
they didn't believe. So back to John 14 in our outline here. Point number two, let's move forward. <clears throat> so some results of this. This whole I and the Father are one, right? This is John 10.30. So let's look at this. And we, we were in John 10 before, so go back to John 10. We're going to talk about this one verse. 10.30, where he says, I and the Father are one. So two times in this conversation, the Jews reacted really harshly. It says, again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. What do we mean again? That means this is something they did before. And obviously, uh, this again just keeps happening again and again and again. Because if you look at verse 31, again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. And it, so in verse 39, again, they tried to seize him. If you go back to John 8, it says they tried to kill him. They picked up stones and were trying to kill him. So this was not something that happened as an isolated incident. It happened again and again. Why? Because Jesus was saying things, explaining what was going on inside of him. They perceived it as blasphemous. And in the law, Blasphemy is punishable by death. So they wanted to kill Christ. In fact, because they considered him a blasphemer, that is one of the things that they said uh, before Pontius Pilate when they were trying to accuse him. Well, Pontius Pilate looked at that and said, we don't care about your law. That's not important to, to me. I, I'm a Gentile. Who do you think I am? I don't care none about your law and your accusation of blasphemy. I, in fact, he looked at, after he looked at and examined the whole thing, he said, I don't find any fault. I can't find any crime that this person has committed. Certainly hasn't committed anything worthy of death, and you're bringing him before me to execute him. For what? There's nothing he did, right? But Pilate didn't have enough backbone to let Christ go. And we can talk about Pilate vacillating as he was. But you know what? It wasn't the will of God either. So he went on to the cross. And that is where the sins of the world were poured out on him and judged. So we do know Pilate's actions fit into the narrative of what would happen and what God knew would happen. It's very much like what happened with Joseph. Joseph said to his brothers who deceived him, threw him in a pit, sold him to uh, the Gentiles. And he says, you did it, you meant it for evil, but God, he meant it for good. God knew that through their actions, even though they were harmful to Joseph, that in the end, God would do and work out his will, uh, just as he did with Israel and Joseph. So in this way, we could see Pharaoh's actions did not go against the will of God. It basically said what, what happened. God knew what was going to happen, and he used that to as a backdrop 
to impute the sins of the world to Christ on the cross and judge them. So, so anyway, back to 1030, where we are, I and the Father are one. So when we say one, what do we mean one? We're not saying that Jesus and the Father are the same person. We're saying one meaning, and what does he mean by one? Mutual possession. How did we get to mutual possession from I and the Father are one? Because when Jesus finally explains it all, he says it in verse 38. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, which was the case, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. So those are pretty equivalent statements that I and the Father are one and the Father being in Christ and Christ in the Father. That's what he means when he says they're one. So if you go to John 17, just to note, just to pick up this theme so we're understanding the dynamics of this. In John 17, 20, my prayer is not for them alone. We might as well get this out of the way since we're here and we're talking about them, us, right? Let's just nail this down so that we know that it is not just the disciples that are in view. It is also us. So anyway, John 17, 20, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Now, just to note, <clears throat> when Jesus says, I pray also, he's, he says, I'm not praying for them alone. Well, what did he pray for them that he is including us in? If you have to go back in John 17 and look at uh, all that he prayed for the disciples, all that he prayed for the disciples, he includes us in that as well. But then he adds more. In John 20, he says, my prayer is not for them. Who's them? The disciples alone. Because what he said about them, about uh, sanctify them by the truth, your word is truth, or they are not of this world, even as I am not of it. All of that applies to us as well. And that's how you get going back and going forward in John 17, 20. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. So who would that be? Us, me, you, listening to me on the phone, on the conference. It, it is, this applies to you directly. Now, if you want to read the Old Testament and find that uh, in Leviticus or some scripture about Israel and the law, what you can read all that. We can learn from that. But those scriptures do not apply to us directly. So just know. It's good reading, good information, good understanding, but don't take it as for you. Don't go running around sacrificing animals or doing this or that. That's not for you, but it is good for you to know how God operated, how he brought forth his nation, how they were a peculiar nation and so forth and so on. But don't, that's not written to you, but this information, what we're talking about in John 14 and all that, does apply to you. It squarely applies to you. So you need to be sitting up in your chair, on the edge of your chair, so that you can understand what God has to say, what promises accrue 
to you as well. So then he says, so John 17, 20, my prayer is not for them alone. It's for us too. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. And now what else do you want to tell us about us as a group, including the disciples who are the foundation of the church? That all of them, what do you mean all of them? Not only the ones prior, but us too, may be one father. So there's that one again. And what do we mean by one? Just to be clear, just as you are in me and I am in you. Well, here we are with that same statement that Jesus is praying to the Father and he's praying and he says that same thing again in John 17, 20, relating to us as well as the disciples. So I hope I don't have to keep on saying, yeah, this applies to us too. You know now. If someone asks you, how do you know? I hope you turn them to these verses and speak to it in the same way we're talking about it right now. So now that we have this information, we can stand on it. We don't have to keep rebuilding it over and over. Not that we haven't already, but some repeating is good. I think it's good. So notice the dynamics of this age. I'm just expanding it to the oneness so when we read Hebrews, right, if we go to Hebrews chapter 2, this is way off the subject, I digress. Here we see it again, right? Uh, it says um, in, in verse 10, In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. And verse 11, both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy, now this is the translation, it says are of the same family. Really? It just says they are of one. One. Now, of course, that's a translation. What did the NIV do with that? They they said, well, what does that mean? That means, well, does it mean we're in the same family? Okay, we'll just translate it that way. But it's the same word, one. We are one. And and if we think about that oneness, go to Ephesians. We might as well finish this thought. Ephesians chapter 1, where it says... For he chose us in him before the creation of the world. This is verse 4. He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Right? This, this is how it happened for us. Right? We are one with him. How did he do it? He chose us in him before the creation of the world. And he also gave us these things which are relative to God the Holy Spirit. Right? These, these are the things that make us one, chose us in Christ. So anyway, back to John 14. Sorry for all the digression. There's so much I guess we could say about this thought. And our notes. Right. So the results... It's not the same person. We're, so Jesus wasn't saying he was the same person as the Father. I think it's very clear in the narrative. 
that he's not the Father, but he's telling you that the Father is living in him. He's doing the work. He's speaking of the Father objectively. Now, why do we need to know this? I mean, I, it's very obvious. But you do have people who take these terms, twist them, and turn them upside down and say, Jesus and the Father are the same person. And so I, I need to at least put it in here that Jesus and the Father are not the same person. Jesus prays to the Father. Is he praying to himself? He mentions that it is the Father, not I, right? It's the Father in me, right? He, he is objectively talking about the Father as another person. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Right? The Word was with the God, the Father. And the Word himself was God. No definite article. And S, so emphasizing the quality of the noun, the Word was, in fact, in essence, God himself. But then something else unique happened to the Word, and the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So, so we have the identity of the Word from eternity past who created all things. Without him, there was not one thing made that has been made. We have the Father, who's God, who's the God spoken of in John 1, distinct from the Word. And obviously, the Father and the Word can't be the same person, but they both have the essence of God. We can talk about what that is, but that's how it works. They both have the essence of God. They're not the same person. There are some people... Some theologies, false, who say that Jesus depends on how he wants to manifest himself. He may manifest himself as the Father, he may manifest himself as the Spirit, but they're all one person. That is, this oneness, let's depart from that, that is not true. Uh, it is demonstrated in Scripture. One of the ways to, to show that it is absolutely not true is that by the Jewish way of thinking, it takes two witness, two to three witnesses to establish something. So you can't say something happened and then nobody is there to corroborate it. There needs another witness to that, to say that it actually happened. Because somebody could be lying, right? But if two people are lying or three people are lying, it's less likely that that thing is, is uh, false. So Jesus says in John 5, he says, I am a witness, and there is another witness <clears throat> who testifies about me, and that is the Father. So if Jesus were saying, I, I testify about myself, yeah, I'm one witness, and then I'm another witness, as the that doesn't even make sense. Either the Father is an objective witness of who Christ is, or it is all a sham. Circular reasoning. Jesus testifying about himself. None of that is true. No, the objective witness is the Father. And he testifies about Christ. He's another witness. He's not the same witness. Uh, hopefully you get this. So we, we need to define these words as we go forward. Because as we break it down and start talking about mutual possession and all the dynamics of it. 
we all need to have the same understanding of words and what they mean. So I'm taking my time. So these are results already. We're already in the results phase of this. We're, we're trying to understand what it means that the Father is in Christ and we are in the Father. So we're not the same person. And again, it means, the oneness means mutual possession. One person having the ability to possess another person. And as I said, that is facilitated for us by means of the Spirit. We're going to have to quit right now because we are, I don't want to continue. We'll take our time, as I said uh, before. There's so much more to talk about, more that you can bear because the Spirit has come. So we will talk about it going forward. We'll pause and have a word of prayer. Let's bow our heads. Thank you, Father, for this hour we've had this afternoon. Such glorious things have been spoken about us. We have been predestined and, and chosen and called and justified and then glorified. To be, we're called to be conformed to the image of your Son. We are said to be one with him. So we thank you for this choosing and the theology all around it, the details that you have shared with us in your word. We pray for each person listening here that we may continue to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. As we go, we pray for wisdom so that as we take these details, we are able to uh, use them to live our lives in this world. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. 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 And now. May the grace of God surround you. May his light direct your path. May His Spirit lead and guide you as the weeks and months go past. May your soul be blessed and may your joy be full of the love that His life brings. As you obey His call, Remember most of your child of the King. May the peace of the Lord go with you. The peace of the Lord go with you. May All right. I will yield the rest of your day back to you.